This is the love story that upended the Texas prison system. In 1967, a 56-year-old lawyer met a young inmate with a brilliant mind and horrifying stories about life on the inside. Their complicated alliance and even more complicated romance would shed light on a nationwide scandal, disrupt a system of abuse and virtual slavery across the state of Texas, and change our prison system forever. On November 9, 1967, Fred Cruz was in his sixth year of a 15-year robbery sentence and starting yet another stint in the hole. Of the many punishments the Texas prison system doled out to the inmates, solitary confinement was one of the most brutal to the body and soul. It wasn't Cruz's first time there either, but it wasn't something one got used to. The Ellis unit about 14 miles north of Huntsville in a boggy lowland area of East Texas was known as the toughest prison in the system, and there was no worse place to be than the Ellis Solitary. The cell's darkness was so complete it made the eyes ache. On some occasion, Cruz was given a thin blanket and nothing else. No clothes and no mattress for the steel bunk. He was naked and his toilet was a hole in the floor. He'd receive only three slices of bread a day with a full meal twice a week, and he'd shed multiple pounds from his already thin frame. After two weeks, an outer door to the cell would be opened, allowing in light from the hallway. This would be considered a release from solitary. When the warden or an officer would come by and assess the sincerity of Cruz's apology, if he failed that yes sir, no sir encounter, the steel door would be shut again for 15 days. Cruz's ability to maintain his composure through interminable silence and darkness was better than that of most other inmates, but still uneven. Sometimes a panic would rise in his chest, his heart would pound, and he couldn't catch his breath. Some days he simply wished for death. But if he got his mind right, he could keep it together. Cruz's upbringing had made him tough. Abandoned by his father, he came of age in the late 50s and early 1960s in a segregated San Antonio. It was a place where you joined a gang or risked becoming that gang's victim. He ran with the Mirasolas and dressed in the street Pachuco style. Zoot suits with pleated pants and suspenders. Members of his family sold drugs and run in with the laws was a regular occurrence. Cruz was 19 and serving a short stint for selling marijuana when he learned that his older brother Frank had been shot dead and killed by the cops. From that childhood grew an emotional stilliness, but it wasn't until he started his 15-year stint in 61 that he began developing intellectual and spiritual strength that was unbelievable. He took to reading difficult texts in philosophy and legal theory. He learned about yoga and Eastern religions and started a correspondence with a Buddhist priest. It was the 60s and though he was in prison, Cruz was aware of the cultural awakenings happening in the world around him. He read Joseph Campbell's The Mask of God, The Fundamentals of Yoga, and other books like that. He was drawn to the Buddhist idea that peace of mind came not from the external world, but from one's personal insight into truth and reality. That morning's infraction had been stupid and petty. As Cruz's squad prepared for the short journey to the cane fields, a friend had offered him a seat on a work wagon. A prison guard, Officer Graham, told Cruz to get on a different wagon, which he promptly did, although he couldn't help make an offhand comment. Personally, he said, I don't care which trailer I go work on. 
Cruiser's response might have sounded innocuous to anyone not schooled in the subtextual game of prison's obedience and resistance, but any prisoner who heard the comment certainly knew it was a brazen challenge to the authority. You're not going to take over my squad, Officer Graham yelled. You're not going to run anything while you're working under me, boy. That evening, after a full day of cutting cane and the open-air strip search that was required after work, Cruz was called into the major's office, where he found almost the entire prison hierarchy waiting for him. "'What's your trouble, boy?' began one of the captains. "'I don't know, sir,' Cruz said. "'That's what I'm here to find out, I guess.' "'Well, you're sure fixing to find out right now,' the captain said. Then Officer Graham told a story about Cruz getting on the wrong wagon. Cruz said he had been running his head with the others, and I told him to get off my trailer, and he opened up his mouth some more to me. Captain Ramsey announced the penalty with a smile. That'll be one gallon of peanuts, boy. Shelling peanuts was at the low end of the punishment scale, a nasty mind-numbing task that would keep Cruz up half the night and leave his fingers blistered and raw. Cruz asked the men to tell him exactly what prison regulation he'd even broken. Was there a rule about which work wagon he rode on or whom he sat next to? I'm entitled to your rules under a fair hearing, he said. I'm refusing to go along with this punishment at this time. I wish to appeal to decision committee. Very well, said McCaskill. You may do what you want when you're released from solitary, but not till then. And so another confrontation with authority came to a close. A page was added to Cruz's folder of offense reports, a file that was already thick enough to make a thump when dropped on the warden's desk. The new entry read, Insubordination, Refused Peanuts. Many of the other offenses chronicled in that disciplinary file were just as petty. Cruz had recently been transferred to Ellis from another prison when he drifted away from his squad's cotton rope. For that, he had lost 90 days of good time. On another occasion, while picking cotton, Cruz had asked the guard for water with the words, No water, no work. For that, he received a week in solitary. Then there was a time he received the punishment of standing on a rail which meant standing for days at a time on a six-by-two plank turned sideways. The offense that day? Inmates started chasing an armadillo. The infractions went on and on. Unsatisfactory work, creating a disturbance, impudence, refusal to work, disobeying a direct order, disrespectful attitude, insolence, insubordination, insubordination, and more insubordination. Cruz was lost, but with each encounter he learned a little bit more about the nature of the TDC. He learned it the same way someone can learn a great deal about the nature of a grizzly bear by poking it with a stick. Cruz's record up to that point confirmed the assessment most prison officials had made when they entered the system in 1961. After an arrest and conviction for the aggravated robbery of an ice house in San Antonio, he'd been described as an 8th grade dropout and a hardened incorrigible with an IQ of only 87, one who was an extremely poor prospect for her rehabilitation. A clinical psychologist named William Gates, who interviewed Cruz, was the only one who saw something different. To his eyes, Cruz was intellectually bright, as well as suspicious and prone to hostile authority. In a report to the warden, Gates warned that Cruz had leadership potential and that if prison authorities failed to keep him in line, he would most certainly be a disturbing influence. Gates should have been a fortune teller, because it wasn't just dumb stuff like chasing armadillos or talking back to low-level turnkeys that would get him in trouble. 
When not working in the fields, Cruz dedicated himself to studying law. Cut off from the siren calls of heroin, marijuana, and alcohol, he'd been, re- been reading textbooks and documents like Supreme Court Opinions, Bill of Rights, and the Constitution. And although he had no illusion of fairness from the inside, he came to understand justice. He almost worshipped it. Cruz's early attempts at writing court filings mostly focused on appealing his own case on the grounds of inadequate representation. He had always denied that he'd been ro- that he'd robbed the ice house, and claimed his court-appointed lawyer had been so disengaged that he failed to call an alibi witness. And while lower courts routinely dismissed Cruz's pleadings, Cruz became known among his fellow inmates as someone who understands the legal system. They called him a writ writer or a jailhouse lawyer. Unfortunately, helping other prisoners with legal issues or keeping legal books or documents in one cell was strictly against the rules. Even talking to another prisoner about the law was a violation of prison rules and could be punished with weeks of hunger and darkness in the hole. Cruz did several stints in solitary for possessing or sharing contraband books and documents, including Cochran's Law Lexicon and the Constitution of the United States of America. So Cruz lost good time first weeks then months then years but the punishment wouldn't stop him using a growing legal acumen he would become the most dangerous man in the cloistered and labyrinth texas prison system a danger not to the other prisoners but to those with the real power the officers and the wardens and george beto the director of the tdc department of corrections As unlikely as it would have seemed as Fred Cruz sat in a solitary in the winter of 1967, he would see to it that many of these men's careers ended in disgrace. The effort would fundamentally alter prison systems across the country. By all reasonable imaginings, Francis Jowett and Fred Cruz should have never met. Jowett was born in Boston and had been among the first cohorts of women to graduate from Columbia Law School in 1937. But like many educated women of that era, she found it difficult to put that education to use. She got married in 1935 and eventually moved to Darien, Connecticut, where the only jobs she could find were teaching and typing. She and her husband had five children, and Frances took charge of raising them. She went to church, she sang in a choir, and she volunteered for good causes. Then, while Jalit's husband was flying a friend's private plane on a trip to Chicago, His flight went down. He barely survived the crash. He came home irrevocably changed by the serious head injury that he had sustained. He drank heavily and was unpredictable and angry. At one point, he became so out of control he had to be hauled off in a straitjacket. For several years, Jala tried to keep her marriage going, but by 1954, it was over. Divorced, she moved with her kids to Washington, D.C. for a job with the American Association of University Women. That was one of a series of moves in short-term positions that lasted only a year or two. By the summer of 1959, she had finally found a job that stuck. As a staff attorney on the New York Law Revision Commission on Ithaca, New York, she held that position for eight years until her children were out of the house. A few days after she got to town, the Austin American Statement ran a short profile of this peculiar woman who had moved from the East Coast to Texas to help low-income people. The writer of the story called her Portia for the Poor, 
After the heroine in the Shakespeare play, a rich heiress who dresses up as a man and fools everyone into believing she's a lawyer. The next week, she received a letter from a prisoner named Fred Cruz. He'd read the article. He said and wondered if she could help him with his case. Javid had never set foot in a prison, never handled a criminal complaint, never had had any type of litigation for that matter. This would be her first case. She had yet to even pass the Texas bar. Helping a prisoner was also outside the bounds of her job description. She was supposed to stick to predicaments in the lives of poor locals, evictions, consumer credit, and unfair debt collection. But Jala decided she could make the visit on her own time. She called the prison to schedule a visit, and a couple weeks later she was there. Jala had no idea what to expect when she entered the Ellis visitor area for the first time. The prison was cleaner and quieter than she had ever imagined. Cruz was brought in and placed on the other side of a wire mesh partition. He wore a long sleeve shirt and pants, both made of thick white cotton. She had expected drabber colors, maybe tan or gray. Cruz didn't fit the mold at all. His eyes were dark, soft, and sad. He told her she should be particularly cautious of Fred Cruz. He's often in trouble for being a writ writer and helping other prisoners out, he said. Beto saw him as crafty, always trying to out-snicker him. He didn't want Jalen to be taken advantage of by such a non-conformist. Beto probably didn't like the sound of her comment, but he would have had no reason to be concerned about the arrival of a middle-aged female lawyer. He was one of the most powerful men in the state, controlling the empire of 14 separate penal facilities, which held more than 12,000 men and women. His prisons were spread across nearly 100,000 acres of alluvial bottomlands formed by the Brazos and Trinity, Trinity Rivers. Due to the size of the land holdings and numbers of employees and ancillary businesses supported by TDCs, locals called the area the Prison Crescent. Beto liked to fly from one prison to the next in his own private plane, often showing up unannounced in the early morning. He was known as Walkin' George for his penchants for strolling among the inmates during his visits. Behind his back's inmate gave him another nickname, Promising George, as their requests and complaints would never seem to go anywhere despite what he told them. He was an educated man of God, a wonderful guy, said Babe Swartz, who served in the legislature. We tried to get Beto as much money as we could to do whatever he wanted. But it was the fact that the prison system didn't need much money that made it popular. Much of the land controlled by TDC was rich farmland producing cotton, sugarcane, corn, and feed crops. The system had more than 15,000 beef and dairy cattle, 17,000 hogs, and 112,000 chickens that produced more than 800,000 dozen eggs a year. Convicts not only grew cotton, more than 3,500-pound 3, bales a year, but also processed it through gins and spun it into cloth, which was sent to the Gorey unit in Huntsville, where female pr- prisoners sewed it into clothes. So there was a little chance that this one lone lawyer, particularly one who barely knew a soul in Texas, could challenge George Beto's authority. It was impossible. The Constitution itself codified his right to treat the prisoners as slaves. The 13th Amendment, adopted in 1865, had abolished slavery in the United States, except as a punishment for crime. From that point to, from that point to well after World War II, Texas had simply swapped out slaves for inmates and kept on picking cotton. 
In the mid-1960s, the federal courts and other states began to hear prisoners' rights cases, but little had changed in Texas where federal judges still held what was called the hands-off doctrine. In the end, Beto no doubt knew that his charm did not win over Jallet. If she began a problem to deal with, he had plenty of other cards he could play against her. All the prisoners' mail, both incoming and outgoing, was read and censored, so he could find out what Jallet and Cruz were up to, or just cut off their communication totally if he wanted to. He could have McAdams throw Cruz in solitary, and he had plenty of political pull in Austin. Wouldn't take more than a couple phone calls to make Texas a very bad place for Francis Jallet. Jallet's first meeting with Cruz left an impression on her too, though. Writing about the experience in a letter, she described Cruz as an intelligent young man who's had a hard time. For a poorly educated convict, he had an amazing grasp of legal issues. I found that he has courage as well. Fred Cruz is handsome. He can think. He can persuade. He can write. It didn't take much to arouse my interest in joining in with him. Javelin and Cruz began corresponding several times a week. They were both prolific writers. Jowett clocking 110 words per minute on an old manual typewriter that printed in cursive script. Because of the censors, letters often arrived weeks late and sometimes in batches. Cruz and Jowett took to numbering their correspondence so they would know when the letters went missing. On December 11, 1967, the day before Cruz's 28th birthday, he was back in solitary confinement. A corrections officer with the Dixian name of Major Savage had accused him of disobeying an order not to share his Buddhist religious materials with other inmates. When Cruz was let out, he wrote in his diary, McAdams came to personally warn him that if he kept writing people about matters that didn't pertain to his case, he would be put in solitary permanently. The warden and Savage accused him of agitating the other prisoners. Cruz couldn't, couldn't quite figure out what they were upset about, but it didn't seem to have anything to do with his new correspondent. McAdams told Cruz he was thinking about cutting off all visits from that woman lawyer. But over the first few months of 1968, Jowett and Cruz started to write each other almost daily, and she drove to visit him as much as she could. They discussed procedural issues, constitutional matters, and the moral underpinnings of justice. Jowett brought Cruz law articles, including one she published herself in the UCLA Law Review, titled The Quest for the General Principles of Law. Cruz would sometimes write to Jowett throughout the night. One letter penned shortly after one of her visits went on for 12 handwritten pages. After a particularly noteworthy meeting where the first time they'd been allowed to be in the same room rather than separated by a barrier, Cruz wrote, It was good to see you again, Miss Jowett. It took us a long time, but we finally got to shake hands, didn't we? During your visit, I often experienced the same frustrations Moses must have felt when the mountains being so close to God but not being able to touch him. You seem to have a very rare gifted capacity to employ your charm in such a tender fashion that while speaking with you a person feels very much at ease and comfortable. He was falling bad in love and couldn't touch her. He wanted her to know the good and bad of the man he was. Over the course of their first year of contact, Cruz told Jallet that by the eighth grade he had stopped attending school sunk into the local drug economy and gone from smoking marijuana to shooting heroin. He had been in and out of the juvenile system and arrested multiple times. He also told her of an incident that scarred him deeply at 17. He was goofing around with an uncle's pistol, showing his best friend how fast he could draw it. 
the gun fired and he killed his friend. No charges were filed. It was just another tragic accident in that part of town. I've been reared and grown up in a community of criminals who are antisocial to the greatest extent, he wrote. My place has always been amongst the worst. I'm telling you these things and hope that by learning some of my past background, you'll have a better insight into how I am now. I do not have anything to hide, nor do I have anything to brag about. Jollett would later insist that while Cruz was in jail, their relationship was strictly one of client and lawyer. Their deep intellectual kinship, however, was apparent from the start. Jollett became increasingly incensed by what she was learning from Cruz about his treatment in the prison. His punishment for practicing sharing his Buddhist faith, for one, seemed a clear violation of his constitutional rights. What was more fundamental than the freedom of religion? The brutality of solitary and the arbitrary way it was used to punish prisoners for sharing legal advice also seemed very unconstitutional. Prisoners elsewhere had begun to petition federal courts for constitutional protections a few years before. A black Muslim prisoner in Illinois had won a Supreme Court case after being denied permission to buy his religious materials. But at Ellis Cruz and other inmates continued to be punished not caring about the new laws. Cruz told some other prisoners about Jalen's assistance and interest, and soon she was meeting with two other inmates too. She literally met with a Muslim African-American prison prisoner named Bobby Brown who had been punished with months of solitary confinement for being a Muslim. A white prisoner named Ronald Novak was serving a 12-year stint for robbery and assault, also requested Jalit's help. Novak struggled bad with mental illness and hallucinations. He told Jalit of being reportedly beaten and starved in solitary, which had exacerbated a kidney ailment that dogged him. Novak was a troubled man and no model prisoner. Three years before meeting Jalit, he had disarmed two guards, stolen a truck, and made his way to Houston before being caught on the escape. Based on her interviews, Jalit began to conf- compose a document she called the Ellis Report. From the very first sentences of its 15 type pages, it was an all-out indictment. The prisoners confined in the Texas Department of Christian Corrections, most especially the Ellis Unit, are deprived of their constitutional rights and subjected to a pattern of repression, harassment, and even torture that at times is shocking. Through abusive practices based on brutality, dehumanization, the inmates live in constant fear. Warden McAdams played a central role in the report. In Cruz's diaries, he described McAdams as showing an unwavering belief in the efficiency of brute force and said the warden's attempt was nothing less than to inflict much mental anguish as possible, lower morale, and plunge men into despair and darkness so they would behave. Jowett documented the story she had heard from prisoners of being made to stand on a rail, of being hung from bars in straitjackets. She wrote of routine beatings with fists, baseball bats, brass knuckles, and blackjacks. McAdams himself often led the action, she wrote, particularly if an African-American work squad showed signs of bucking. She told of one incident when a prisoner was made to shell peanuts for five days straight until his fingers were so raw, he attempted suicide by killing himself, slashing his wrist. She also exposed the role of the building tenders, inmates who are allowed to keep weapons so long as they were willing to tune up troublemakers at the request of prison administrators. They had remarkable power. 
building tenders are henchmen of the establishment and have authority to harass, intimidate, and even beat, possibly kill prisoners, Jolly wrote. The use of building tenders was being phased out across America, but Texas was a holdout. This was one of Beto's dirty secrets. He could run his prisons cheaply, not just because he had free labor, but because select prisoners acted as his guards and enforcers, too. They didn't cost a thing. One just needed to give them some weapons and a few extra privileges, and they'd do it. Jollett began to circulate copies of the Ellis Report to state agencies and civil rights groups. She sent one copy to the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, where it found its way to a young Harvard-trained staff attorney named William Turner. Jollett became increasingly convinced that the abuses in prison, particularly the use of solitary confinement and the restrictions needed to be challenged in court badly. It couldn't have taken long before Beto caught wind of this report, though, himself. If he had any doubt about whom Javit was likely to sue, the first section cleared that up. The department's mask of respectability, she wrote, is furthered by the stat- status of Dr. George J. Beto, a former Lutheran minister and college president, who, though he cannot be blind to what goes on, managed to obscure those vi- views from our eyes. Sorry. The implications would have been obvious to Beto and his wardens. Javits using Cruz as their key informant, and the Texas prison system is in trouble. In the spring of 1968, Beto decided it was time to go on the offensive about this. His first counter move was to lodge a complaint with Javits' boss at the legal aid office in Austin. What right, he wanted to know, did this out-of-state lawyer have stirring up the prison population? Javits' boss immediately took all her cases away. She wrote to her home office in Philadelphia, which managed to find her a new posting at a poverty law center in Dallas. Javits was in her new job for only half a year when Beto phoned her new boss, Joshua Taylor, to say that his latest hire was a thorn in his side. Taylor dutifully instructed Javits to stop visiting the prisons. Javits refused. The bitter fights between the two, sometimes aggravated by Taylor's late afternoon drinking, become talk of the workplace. If you don't like the way I run this office, he shouted at one point, you know where the door is. In a memo, Taylor ordered Java to no longer assist prisoners and to stop attacking the policies of the Texas prison system. When Beto got a copy of Taylor's directive, he had a pretext to bar her from his prisons. He told his wardens to remove Java from the approved visiting correspondence list. Suddenly, Jalen was cut off from her clients. In response, Jalen filed an injunction and a restraining order against both Beto and Taylor. Filing a motion against her own boss, she surely knew would be the last straw on Christmas Eve. Taylor called her into his office and told her he was firing her. I don't think she cared. That cri- That's funny. That Christmas of 1968 was a tough one. On top of being let go and not knowing how she was going to pay rent, Jolly came down with the flu. It was also her first Christmas away from her children, and her youngest, Frances, a college student in New York, sent her a concerned note. Are you staying down in Texas for Mr. Cruz and the others, she asked. If so, I don't think that's enough reason, Mom. There are minority groups here, and we need you. The head of the fellowship program in Philadelphia offered to find Jolly another poverty law center to work at back east. Although she longed to be near her children, she refused. She said, I just can't walk off from these men. They're living too bad, she wrote to a friend. She knew too much about what was happening inside, and she was ready to do something about it. 
So Jolly had to find another organization in Texas willing to take her in so she could stay. By February, she'd accepted the post of managing attorney of the legal aid clinic at the Texas Southern University Law School in Houston. Jolly found it to be small and poorly funded, but Houston had one advantage. It was only 80 miles from the Ellis unit. She'd have time to keep going back. Weeks went by with no ability to correspond with or visit her clients, and Jollett worried for Cruz, Novak, and Brown deeply. Would they think she had abandoned them? Fortunately, she had the prison grapevine. She learned that officials were moving her three clients between solitary and segregated isolation and pressuring at least one of them to sign papers accusing her of inciting violence. She also learned that Beto and McAdams were keeping track of her. McAdams had bragged to one prison visitor that he knew exactly when Jollett had arrived in Houston and the dates of her trips to and from Dallas. She began to worry that her phone had been tapped and sometimes imposed on her neighbors when she needed to make sensitive calls. She'd go borrow their phone. It was all like a nightmare, Jollett wrote, especially when I think that three prisoners I've tried to help have such a hard time. Jollett also began to reach out to powerful lawyers in Texas. Jollett hadn't been well received by the state's legal community, but when her fellow lawyers learned that state officials had barred her from speaking with her own clients, they became to get irate and come to her aid. One well-connected attorney in Houston was so disturbed by these reports that he called the state attorney's first assistant and convinced him to help her. By the time the Texas Attorney General Office negotiated a ceasefire, Jallis would have be allowed to visit her clients if she dropped her legal action against Beto. Things had gotten desperate. Bobby Brown had for months been held in a strip cell with no sheets, pillows, or toilet paper. Novak had been beaten savagely by two building tenders, and the weeks he spent in solitary had damaged his further health. As for Cruz, after multiple stints in solitary, he could barely put together a coerced sentence anymore. His voice was weak from disuse. He hadn't spoken more than a few words in months. But Jallet's battle with Beto was a hot topic among the prison population. Beto was not someone who backed down, and yet the diminutive Yankee woman was either. She wouldn't either. Wow. On July 1967, Neil Armstrong set foot on the moon that day. The correspondence between Jallet and Cruz makes no mention of the event. They didn't care. They were far too busy pushing their first major lawsuit through the court system. Jallet helped Cruz and Novak write and file a lawsuit challenging both the TDC rules of barring prisoners from helping each other and the use of solitary confinement. They were finally going to challenge Beto in court, federal court, where he was not that powerful. Jallet wasn't a seasoned trial attorney at all. In fact, she had no trial experience. So she was partnered with William Bennett Turner, the NAACP legal defense fund lawyer who had become interested in her prison advocacy. He flew out from San Francisco to help her interview witnesses and prepare, prepare to trial. His work ethic was a match for Jowitz and the pair toiled seven days a week while he was here. They did take a break and pay the $1 admission to witness the annual prison rodeo, though. Prisoners in striped outfits, robed cows and bulls and broncos, other dressed as rodeo clowns. It was the first rodeo either had seen in their entire life. A month before the trial date, Jollett was at Ellis meeting with her clients. At noon, she left the prison to drive to Huntsville for lunch. She noticed right away that the steering in her car felt different. Rounding the curve, she lost control and crashed into the ditch. 
Although she was badly bruised, the x-ray showed no broken bones, and soon after a night in the hospital, she was back at Ellis to continue her meetings. Somebody had tampered with her car. Wow, she was wondering later whether someone had tampered with her car and regretted not having it inspected before it was repaired. You're in redneck country, Novak wrote her. How do you know that that was an accident? On November 15th, the case came to trial in Houston, Texas. The judge assigned Woodrow Seals was a World War II Air Force veteran and a Democrat who had been a campaign manager for JFK. He'd been appointed in 1966 by Lyndon B. Johnson. No, he didn't have a long track record. Given the possibility of other good old boy judges in Texas, seemed like a good lucky break to get him. Crews wore a suit and sat next to Jowett at the council table. At the judge's request, guards were placed throughout the courtroom to assist the U.S. Marshals. Several reporters tipped off to a good story by letters Jowett had sent to their editors sat with notebooks at the ready. The trial began and Jowett and Turner called their first witness, Novak. He described the brutality and mental anguish of solitary. He told the judge over a three-month period in the previous year he had spent more than 78 days in solitary in four separate stints. The starvation and isolation and darkness had pushed him beyond his mental limits. In despair, he said he managed to saw through one of his Achilles tendons, a common act of self-mutilation they call heel stringing, in order to avoid future work in the field and be moved to a hospital. The reason he had been punished so harshly, Novak testified, was that he had asked Cruz for help in filing legal papers. That was it. Under cross-examination, he admitted that three that there were times in the past when he'd been placed in solitary confinement for more serious offenses. Well, what are they supposed to do with you? Give you a medal? Judge Seals asked in his first of many hints that Seals' assignment might not have been a good idea at all. When Cruz took the stand, Judge Seals took over the questioning. If prison officials couldn't use solitary, the judge wanted to know what punishment would be most effective in reprimanding a prisoner who repeated violating prison regulations. How about whipping, Seals asked. Would that deter people from violating regulations in prison if you tied them to a stake in a prison yard and whipped them? Not breaking any bones, not whipped them unconscious, but whipped them so they know they've had a whipping? The judge seemed to want Cruz to admit that on a scale of all possible penalties, solitary wasn't the worst. Cruz had spent hundreds of hours thinking and writing about the nature of such punishment, gathered his thoughts, and answered. When you use physical force on a man, the only thing you do is breed hostility. If you breach his respect for authority and he goes back in society, he takes that hostility and hatred with him. And that's why a lot of people go back in society and commit more crimes. It creates a cycle. Judge Seal considered this answer very unsatisfactory. Suppose, though, you have a prisoner who's not very smart and he might be a little emotional disturbed. Now, don't you think he should be punished so he will learn that he can't keep doing what he's doing? I believe those people should be helped through psychiatrists and counseling so that they'd be able to understand, said Cruz. If they are not responsible for their actions, I don't believe that they should be punished for them. Is there any situation, Seals asked, where punishment does help a prisoner when he violates a regulation? Cruz admitted that sometimes a prisoner would have to be isolated if he were violent, but suggested that education and meditation would be better than solitary in the long term. Suppose you give him another chance, Seals Press, and he violates the regulation again. What do you do with him? I guess just repeat the process, Cruz said. 
Suppose it doesn't help, the judge said. Here is the warden with hundreds and hundreds of people. Don't you think if he didn't have some way of punishing these people that he couldn't run the prison? How can he enforce discipline? I don't have the expertise on that, Your Honor, Cruz said. I can just say from my own experience that the effect punishment has had on me. Well, what has it had on you, Seals asked. For one thing, Cruz began, it has made me more resolute in trying to enjoin some of these unreasonable regulations that I feel are wrong. Seals wasn't having any of this. The law did not give you the power to make the regulations, see, Seals said. You are just an uneducated man with an eighth grade education. The law puts power to regulate the, pres- the prison in expert hands like Dr. Beto. Why don't you recognize that that's what the people of Texas want to do and obey their regulations? Why do you have to disagree? That's what he asked him. If Seals thought he could browbeat Cruz into submission, he was wrong. I recognize the fact that he does have broad discretion in promulgating these rules and regulations, Cruz responded. But I also recognize the fact that he could not enforce a rule and regulation that is in contradiction of federal laws. He's under the obligation of law just like I am. He also has to obey the law. He also has to protect my rights in support of regulations that punish me. Because Beto had not provided that protection, Cruz said, I feel I have a moral duty to resist it, and that's what I've been doing. Jowett already had a great admiration for Cruz's mind, but his performance on the stand took her by surprise. He looked different, dapper in his suit and tie. And his pre-natural pre, pre poise facing rapid-fire questioning from a district court judge amazed her. She had no doubt were he given the opportunity he could be the best attorney ever. George Beto then took the stand at the very end of the week-long trial. To Jalen's eyes, he was clearly uncomfortable under oath. His answers were imperious, many lectures about the difficulties of his job and the instating incarceration of America. As he had done throughout the week, Judge Seals took over most of the questioning. Is there any particular reason why you do not want Fred Cruz assisting other prisoners in, protection, in preparation of writs, he asked Beto. He could develop an unconscionable control of other over other inmates by setting himself up as a lawyer, Beto said. There are two types of prisons. Those the convicts run and those the administrations run. I live in mortal fear of a convict-run prison. Of course, what Beto really meant was that he didn't want his prison run by convicts who were not in his control. Cell blocks across Texas were already ran by the building centers. It made no sense what he said. Immediately after the close of trial, just five days before Christmas, the president of the Texas Southern University told the president of the law school that he'd have to fire Jowett or the university would lose funding. The facility and st- the faculty and the student school protested to no avail. I'm deeply discouraged, Jowett wrote. I seem up to late be battling my head against a brick wall named Dr. Beto, and he's running me out of Texas. It was a little surprised that she felt that way. Jala was taking on a man with incredible power and influence, not just in Texas, but across the country. As 1970 began, Beto's public reputation was at its peak. He was in his second year as the president of the American Correctional Association, and he soon would be awarded the Distinguished Alumnus Award by the University of Texas. He gave frequent speeches across the U.S. and became known as the Grand Old Man of the Gray Walls. 
After the trial, Cruz was temporarily set to the WIN unit, where he was placed in isolation and denied all privileges. Cruz was undeterred. While he didn't know the outcome of the trial, he had just challenged Beto and it felt good. In the spring of 1970, Cruz managed to secure a pen and using his ration of toilet paper, wrote a class action lawsuit against the state of Texas stating that the prison system had punished him for trying to exercise his religious beliefs. He managed to get the toilet paper out of prison and filed in the district court. Whatever the outcome of the first case, Cruz and Jollett had another one in the works. He literally wrote his lawsuit on toilet paper. Wow. In October, Judge Seals' ruling came down. Cruz and Novak had lost. Seals ruled that prisoners had no need to help each other in legal matters because the years before the Department of Corrections had hired attorneys to provide assistance. One attorney for 14,000 inmates was all there was, but that was enough for them. Seals parroted Beto's testimony that writ writers like Cruz might use their legal knowledge to control other prisoners, even though there had been no evidence of anything like this ever happening. As for solitary being cruel and unusual punishment for prisoners helping out each other with legal matters, Seals decided that prison officials should have great leeway in choosing disciplinary measures, lest a judicial stranglehold sabotage the entire system. This reaffirmed the hands-off doctrine that gave the administrators like Beto so much power they lost. Rather than define arbitrary requirements, Seal wrote, we rely on the good faith of Dr. Beto and other prison officials to affect the spirit of the Constitution. We trust them. It is clear to the court from the evidence that the Texas Department of Corrections is an outstanding institution in every respect. The court is further convinced that Dr. George Beto is a fair, kind, and just man and an excellent administrator. He had too much power to lose. Jallet got to work appealing both losses, but they were both devastating blows to her clients. Novak, his body long wrecked with chronic health problems, just seemed to give up. He couldn't speak coherently anymore. His pulse was rapid and irregular, and he was breaking out into rashes. Alvin Slayton, another one of Jallet's clients who had trained as a nurse prior to prison, took on the charge of his care. When Novak started spitting up bright red blood, Slayton begged guards to get him to the hospital. He was told that a doctor would be around soon for his routine visits. By December 14th, Novak was in agony. He couldn't defecate or keep food down. Slayton asked if he could at least administer some Demerol. The guards refused. A few days later, Dr. Shelton, the prison psychiatrist, came on his rounds. He was appalled by Novak's conditions. He immediately got on the phone yelling, I'm not bullshitting. Get an ambulance out here right now. This man is dying. On Christmas Eve, Jallet wrote to her troubled client worrying about his declining health and telling him she would visit him soon. Novak never read the letter because he died. As 1971 began, Cruz and Jallet had little to show for their three-year partnership. Seal's decision was a spectacular loss. Cruz's toilet paper appeal for religious freedom seemed to be going nowhere. Beto's power and reputation had just grown stronger and he was more powerful. Javit knew that setbacks and slow progress would be to be expected in civil rights works. Battles for the rights of marginalized communities were rarely, rarely won at the lower court levels. She was playing a long game and she knew it. That testimony she hoped would eventually be their undoing. Don't worry, she told a friend. I'll not give up the fight, but I'd sort of like to win a round or two. 
She had another reason to keep going, though. She was growing ever fonder of Cruz. I know how deeply you love your son, Jolly Rose, to Cruz's mother that spring. I've grown to love him also. Just what kind of love she was professing was unclear, perhaps even to her. She certainly had deep admiration for his intellect and mental strength. She knew like few others how he suffered in prison. Every day he stayed there increased the likelihood that he'd suffer a permanent injury or be killed. She had to help get him free. But prison officials continued to make life difficult. One day, Jalice showed up at the gates and was told she needed to find a notary and attest in writing that she was a lawyer. She presented her Texas bar card, but told that's not enough. On other occasions, she'd notify the prison officials in advance that she was coming to see a client, only to arrive and find that he'd been out in the fields or that he had an incident and couldn't because he got into a fight and the inmate was in the hospital or solitary conveniently. Sometimes they just sent her the wrong man. It was a petty game, but Jalit dutifully documented each instance in order to have a record of all the ways they experienced the hate from the Texas prisons. She was paying attention. Warden Bear Tracks McAdam had been transferred from Ellis to another prison, but the new boss, Robert Cousins, was just as harsh. For Cruz, any of Jalit's other clients, no offense or sign of disrespect was too small to be severely punished. One day, Cruz was called out by a guard when he tried to put his shoe on in the hallway. Nothing, not being allowed to put on his shoe in the hallway seemed foolish to him, he said. Warden Cousins was called to the scene and, it, and was told that Cruz had disobeyed a direct order and called the guard a fool. Cousins declared he was going in solitary until he changed his attitude. Don't you want to hear what I have to say, Cruz said. Cousins grabbed Cruz by the throat and pushed him against the wall. I'm going to tell you something. I'm tired of putting up with you. I'm tired of that woman coming down to see you. You better tell her and those N-I-G-G-E-R loving lawyers. They better hurry up and get you out of here and learn to keep my name out their goddamn mouth. But if they don't, I'm going to send you out in the pine box, boy. Somebody should have killed you a long time ago. And he threw him in the fucking hole. Jalit began to get word that prison officials had started a concerted campaign to turn her few dozen clients against her. They would call her prisoners in one by one to conjole and threaten them. Things would go much better for them, they were told, if they fired that lady lawyer. Some buckled. Jalit would show up at the prison gates and be told that certain clients no longer wanted to see her. She began to receive sharply worded letters from prisoners dismissing her and denigrating her character. Mrs. Jollett, I'm beginning to catch on to a few things, wrote one prisoner. Number one is that you have a personal grudge against the TDC and are using a few prisoners to help you get your foot in the door. If you have any care or compassion about your clients, prove it to them by not returning and stirring them up anymore. Donald Locke, an inmate she had met only once and didn't represent, wrote to prison officials and the attorney general that Jowett had ordered three beatings he received. Locke, who was young and brutalized by guards and other prisons, had been beaten repeatedly, but the idea that Jowett had ordered the assaults were absurd. More likely, Locke saw a chance to gain the protection of prison officials by accusing Jowett. I feel that Miss Jowett should be barred from Texas prisons, he wrote. I'm hoping you could give me a lawyer to help me with this matter. 
That fall, Freddie Dyer, a building tender, took matters a step further by filing a suit alleging a conspiracy between Javid and her clients to foment a revolt in the prison. Dreyer's suit claimed Javid was interfering with the prison's orderly operation, causing a breakdown in morale, teaching revolutionary ideas, and threatening prison security by encouraging and assisting a small prison population with their litigation. Soon another tender named Robert Slayman filed a suit with remarkably similar language. Locke filed a third suit and was promoted to trustee, the second most powerful role in a prison. Reporters jumped to cover the new lawsuits. At September 14, 1971, the headline in the Houston Chronicle read, Inmate claims woman lawyer is an agitator. The cases the paper reported alleged that a Houston woman lawyer was teaching revolutionary ideas and threatening prison security. Javit was certain that George Beto was behind these lawsuits. One prisoner Javit had tried to help had told her that he'd been offered parole if he would file a similar action. This latest tactic was a new low in Javit's eyes. I put nothing past George Beto, she wrote, including murder. Javit assumed the lawsuits against her would be dismissed. Not only did they lack any basis in truth, they didn't have any basis in law. The prisoners were suing her under the same law that she was using to sue Beto and the Department of Corrections, one that protected people from abuse at the hands of officials acting of power. Judge Carl Bew, however, didn't seem to mind that Javid wielded no state power. He combined the three suits into one and allowed them to go forward. Javid had lost every legal battle she had fought so far. She was winless. If she lost this one, she knew it'd be in the end of her days in Texas. Beto's new plan to rid Texas of Javit was likely motivated by other factors, such as the country's dramatic rise in prison riots. There had just been five in 1967, but that number had tripled the next year. There were 27 riots in 1970, and 1971 was on pace for even more. On September 9, an uprising of nearly half of the 22 prisoners at the Attica Prison in New York turned into a five-day siege that dominated the news. Prisoners took 42 prison officials and civilians hostage. By the time the uprising was quelled, more than 40 people were dead, including 10 prison guards and employees. The day the New York State Police launched a bloody assault on Attica to take control, Beto was a featured speaker at the National Governor's Conference in San Juan, Puerto Rico that day. The Attica riot, he told attendees, was tragic and horrible example of the convict-run institution. Not long after he returned to Texas, George Beto decided for the second time to ban Jowett from prisons. Your continued and frequent visits to Department of Corrections as well as your correspondence with inmates makes it impossible for me to guarantee tranquility within the institutions and protection of inmates, he wrote to Jowett. Accordingly, effective this date, I'm requesting all wardens of the Texas Department of Corrections to deny your admission to the institutions under my supervision. At this point, Jowett represented close to 50 prisoners. By fiat, Beto had deprived all 50 of them of their lawyer. When Cruz heard what Beto had done, he likely knew he was in grave danger. Sure enough, a few days later, a building tender named Jesse Montague, who went by the nickname Bay City, appeared at Cruz's cell door. I guess you know they barred that woman lawyer to come see you, Montague said. 
He dragged Cruz out of his cell and with the help of another tender who held Cruz's arms behind his back, savagely beat him with a blackjack. No fucking greaser's gonna take over my cell block, Montague spat on him. After 12 days in the hospital, Cruz was accused of assaulting Montague and put in solitary confinement. He lost a few good down days he had accumulated and was looking at another seven years in prison. As Cruz recovered, Jowett spent long days with her typewriter and on the phone trying to get support from anyone who would fight Beto. Prominent figures from the Texas bar came to her aid, thankfully. They might not have had much in common with her politically, indeed. They might not have even liked her. But many of them saw Beto's decision for what it was, an assault on the constitutional rights of lawyers. After a series of letters from prominent attorneys objecting to the restrictions put on Beto, Beto fell to the pressure for the first time ever and reversed the decision. But he was far from giving up the fight. He was about to fight harder. In mid-November, Cruz was taken out of solitary and told he was being transferred. He was put into a car with Warden Cousins and driven through the Ellis Gates. After a few miles, they stopped on the side of the road where Beto sat waiting in another car. Cousins got out, walked over, spoke with the director, then got into the car. Do you know where we're going, Cousins asked Cruz. I'm going in the right direction, Cruz said to the warden, because I'm getting away from Ellis. I'm taking you to the place you can confer with your ta- with the warden. I'm sorry, I'm taking you to the place where you can confer with your attorney, the warden said. She wants to see you. Cruz wasn't the only one being transferred that day. The pressure on inmates to disavow Javid had left her with about half of her 50 clients only. The two dozen of state loyal were being shipped to the notorious wind unit on the outskirts of Huntsville. Ellis may have been known as brutal and violent, but the wind unit was also despised. Among prisoners, it was properly known as the Broke Dick Farm because it housed the mentally disabled and the mentally ill. For years, the unit had been run by a warden who was generally viewed as compassionate, but that warden had been replaced by none other than Bear Tracks' damn self. As as wardens often did when they transferred, McAdams brought along his favorite staff. In this case, he brought his building tenders with him. Javits' two dozen clients were put together on the four-tier of B-Wing and collectively designated eight-hole work squad. They were isolated from the rest of inmates, even eating at different times. They were allowed no regular recreational activities or educational or rehabilitation programs. They worked six days a week and were given the most disgusting and back-breaking assignments, like shoveling manure and stacking telephone poles. They were also doped up. Normally not known for providing attentive medical care, prison doctors began liberally prescribing powerful psychoactive drugs such as Thorazine and Librium to the aid hole. This worried Jallet. Cruz, as a former heroin user, would be in particular danger of falling back into addiction, and Jallet counseled him to resist the drugs. This wasn't medical treatment. It was a way to debilitate their clients. From Beto's perspective, collecting these inmates in one place must have seemed like a savvy move. Prison officials could keep an eye on them and isolating them from other prisoners kept them from spreading their seditious activities. They could be punished as a group and shown the errors of their ways all together. It's Beto's dream come true. 
Beto and McAdams were also aware of the requiring inmates of different races to live together was considered by most Texas prisoners as punishment in itself. Beto and McAdams were also aware that requiring inmates of different races to live together were considered by most Texas prisoners as punishment in itself. At every unit of the prison system, racial segregation was strictly enforced. Surely they thought this mixed bag of Hispanics, blacks, and whites would tear each other to bits. Prison officials made themselves unusable and double-bunked us, remembers eight-ho member Lawrence Pope. They made it a definite point to mix the races and put black with white, black with Chicano, Chicano with white, and so forth to cause friction. They thought we were going to get in all kinds of difficulties, but we didn't. We were very cohesive, and we were all friends with solidarity. They didn't know. This wasn't Beto's only miscalculation. Grouping all the writ writers on the same cell block would turn out to be his biggest mistake. Jalen hadn't just represented these convicts. She'd taken time to educate them about the law and teach them how to do it themselves. She made them bad men. Her clients began to share their knowledge and work together with each other. In effect, wrote one historian, the eight-hole work squad will become one of the most successful prisoners' right law firms in the country. They got more done than lawyers. Beto inadvertently created a jailhouse lawyer dream team. <laughs> wow. There was James Grigg, who had served time in another state and knew the rules and regulations in other institutions. David Ruiz was a born street fighter who had no fear when it came to physical violence and taking the punishment they dished out. Lawrence Pope, a failed banker turned bank robber, was a middle-class white guy with good skills and a remarkable memory for details. Alvin Slayton, the trained nurse, would tend to the eight whole squads wounds and illnesses and keep all of them healthy when they were trying to let them die. The worst thing that Beto could have done, he got all of the best brains in the Texas prison and put them together. That's where he messed up. These men were intensely loyal to Jalot. They knew the suffering she had gone through to represent them and how she worked so hard and her life was in danger for them. Within two weeks of being put together on the win unit, the two dozen members of Eight Hole Work Squad had joined Jalad and began drafting the lawsuit. They were suing Beto personally for dying, denying them constitutional rights by barring Jalad from prison and punishing their attempts to access court through her. This time, Jalad would be the plaintiff. Alongside her prison clients, it's totally different. On the morning of November 29, two guards moved the Eight Hole Squad out of the cell block for another day's trip to the field. There was a damp chill in the air and the men stopped to rummage through a pile of jackets made available in the cold weather. Donald Locke, the newly appointed trustee who was suing Jollett, walked up behind Cruz. As Cruz turned around, Locke landed a solid punch, breaking Cruz's jaw and opening the gash on his face. Richard Jimenez, another of Jollett's clients, was first to come to Cruz's aid. Unlike the building tenders, Locke wasn't much of a fighter. And as seeing Cruz had help, he backed down. Yeah, it's just me and you, Cruz, he yelled from several yards away. Cruz knew not to take that bait. He stood silently surrounded by members of the eight-hole, holding a handkerchief to his bleeding face. He didn't react. Moments later, guards on duty broke up the confrontation and called for Jimenez and Cruz to step away from the group, saying, We're getting you two for fighting. They ordered the rest to walk toward the gate for their work assignment, but nobody moved. The eight whole squad had been together less than a month, but in that moment they made a collective decision. They're going to stick together no matter what.
the entire eight-hole squad demanded to see the warden right then. The guard, seeing that he had lost control of the men, had no choice but to go get the warden. Before he left to get McAdams, he yelled up to the guard on the watchtower to get his 30-30 rifle and shoot anybody that moves. McAdams soon arrived with a cadre of his lieutenants. Eight-hole member David Robles spoke up first. Fred didn't start that fight, Robles said to McAdams. He was jumped on by locks. Jimenez was just trying to break it up. McAdams approached Robles and showed him. That's a lie, he said. These men are going to the hole. If you take them, Robles said, you might as well take me too then. So shit, Robles, Jimenez, and Cruz were hauled off to solitary and the rest of the squad was forced to go work. Members of the eight hole thought the, thought the fight had been an obvious setup, an excuse to punish Cruz and attempt to break the morale of others. It only helped to solidify and make them stronger. They just made them mad. Christmas time in Texas always seemed to bring bad news for Jolly and Cruz. This was the season when Jolly had gotten fired from her jobs, when Novak died, when Jolly missed her children the most. But as 71 ended, there were good tidings. The appeal of Novak case had been heard by a panel of three judges in the Fifth Circuit. Disagreeing with Judge Seals, they ruled that the Department of Corrections had objectively failed to provide prisoners with their services. The TDC's ban against inmate assistance cannot stand, said one of the judges. This was the first hint of change, and they could not believe it. In the Novak ruling, the fifth court judges added that any loss of good time suffered for violating the unlawful reg- regulations needed to be restored. This was big news for Cruz, who had lost years and years of good time credit for helping his inmates. After a decade behind bars, he was looking at the possibility of getting out in a few months. The main event was still to come in 1972, though. If the two building tenders and trustee lock won with their suit against Jala to claim she was starting a revolt, she'd be disgraced and likely lose her bar license. But a victory by Jala in the eight-hole squad in their suit against Beto would equally be significant. It would not only be a public shaming of the director, it would also signal that even someone as powerful as him can be touched. Jallet was far from optimistic, though. She had landed yet another job, this time with the Vista Property Program, but it brought in just $190 a month, barely enough to pay for food in a small Houston apartment. She owned no property or assets other than a 1967 car, which was worth about 700 bucks. She had no money saved to hire a confident lawyer for her, and a team of six lawyer members of the Houston ACLU came to her defense. Two to defend against each three building tender suits. They literally sent her six lawyers to help. They volunteered their time. But unavoidable court costs and expensive nearly bankrupted the Houston ACLU. Early signals from Judge Bew gave Jowett even more reason to be nervous. After a meeting with Beto, Bew had handpicked three heavy-hitting lawyers to represent the prisoners suing Jallet. One was Tom Phillips, the chief trial lawyer at one of the largest and most prestigious firms in Houston. The second, David, Donald Eckhart, happened to be a lawyer from Bew's old firm. The last was Max Jennings. He had an office on the same floor where used to, Bew used to be in a private practice. They were all his friends. Bew guaranteed that the plaintiff's costs for their lawyers would be picked up by the federal government. Jalif, however, would get no financial help. 
Worse yet, you would be the presiding judge in both cases. The prisoner suits against Jallet would go first, and then you'd hear Jallet and Nadeau's case against Beto. It was a setup. I truly believe that the judge is in on the conspiracy, she said. I believe she was right. While Cruz and Jallet awaited the start, of, start date of the trial, two monumental events occurred to change everything. On March 20, 1972, the United States Supreme Court ruled on Cruz's freedom of religion lawsuit. The complaint Cruz had written on toilet paper while in solitary. They ruled that the state of Texas had discriminated against Cruz by denying him a reasonable opportunity to be a Buddhist. However, since the case had never had a full hearing, all the Supreme Court do was to direct the lower courts in Texas to hear it. As far as anyone knew, it was the first case written on toilet paper to ever be considered by the United States Supreme Court. The second remarkable thing was that Fred Cruz was given back the good time he had lost. Subtracting those days from his 15-year sentence shows that he was overdue for release. On March 9, 1972, he walked out of the prisoner processing center in Huntsville. Now there were no bars, wires, or glass separating him from Jallet. He could finally touch her. Since they had met in the fall of 1967, Jallet and Cruz had kept their relationship strictly professional. Now that Cruz was free, they could admit that they had fallen in love. A month later, just days before the start of the trial would determine the fate of Jallet's career, they drove across the, the Mexican border and got married. Their marriage was huge news when Jallet's trial commenced the following day in Houston. The ACLU's lawyers were fucking stunned, and all the papers ran stories salacious, saying she helped free him, then married him. Ran one headline. Jallet and Cruz's age difference was always emphasized. The Houston Chronicle even put it in their headlines. Woman lawyer 61, weds ex-con 32. There were also references to the differences in their educational backgrounds. Mr. Jowett, a Radcliffe graduate, said that Cruz has an 8th grade graduation, still married him. Jowett had known that marriage would raise questions about her motivations. She told reporters and colleagues as well as her daughters and friends that she and Cruz had never discussed their feelings for one another until Cruz's release. And since all of their letters were read by officials and many of their in-person conversations monitored, you can bet the topic was never raised before. Still reading between the lines of hundreds of pages of correspondence, one can clearly see a deep connection building over time. Their intimacy grew from the mutual love of the law to a mutual love of each other. She became his champion, and he became her hero. But don't worry, the surprise marriage was not the only remarkable thing that happened that week. Robert Slayman, one of the three prisoners suing Jallet, got released from prison on his second day of the trial, likely his reward for filing the suit. Then, Robert Slayman up and disappeared. Now that he had his freeman, freeman, he did not care about that court no more, and he seen no reason to keep doing that to Jallet. Dreyer and Locke, the other two prisoners suing Jallet, played their assigned parts, at least in the beginning. On the stand, they swore that Jallet, through Cruz, had encouraged her clients to join a conspiracy to take over the prison. They portrayed her as a dangerous ringleader of a group intent on revolt. Other building tenders were also brought in to testify. Julius Dwayne Perry said that Jallet had told him that riots like the one in Attica were necessary. Sometimes we must suffer to open the eyes of the public, he claimed she told him. 
another building tender testified that Jellett had suggested he murder another prisoner. Warden McAdams then testified how Jollop stirred up the prisoners, making them more dangerous and less compliant. After one or two visits, he said on the stand, there was more work stoppage, more fights, more tension, more men in solitary, McAdams testified. He even brought pictures to show the judge the improvements in the facilities. All of the good work, he testified, was threatened by Jollop's interference. The lawyers cross-examining McAdams asked him about the many abuses Jollop had documented with the helps of her clients. He denied every single one of them. Were prisoners ever punished for minor infractions of unrisen prisoners' rules? Were they ever beaten with baseball bats or blackjacks? Were they ever hung from bars with straitjackets? Were they made to stand on rails or stomped on with, while handcuffed? Were building tenders used as enforcers? Under oath, McAdams testified that none of this was true. He lied, lied terribly. To counter McAdams' anodyne picture of the Texas prison system, Jollett's attorney introduced a book of photographs by Danny Lyon that had been published a year before. Beto had given Lyon an open pass to take pictures inside of his prisons for 14 months beginning in 1967. Lyon's black and white photographs cataloged the daily realities of a world of forced labor and despair. At the beginning of the second week, Jollett took the stand herself. She could not have looked less like a violent prone Svengali described by the tenders. It was almost comical to imagine this well-spoken lawyer saying that somebody needed killing. Under questioning, Java denied that she had ever encouraged open revolt or advocate for the beating of murderer prisoners. There was virtually no evidence outside the outlandish claims of the building tenders themselves that Java had ever done any of this. The TDC had monitored her letters to and from prisoners for four years, and all that correspondence, just one line, was out of character while Beto was conspiring to get Janet fired from her post in Austin. She had written that she wanted to lash out at the whole prison system. It was a rare show of anger, but hardly proof that she organized a conspiracy. With no proof that Jolly had actually done anything she was accused of, the lawyers for Lock and Dryer had to resort to hypotheticals. What if, they asked Jolly, one of her clients had told her they were planning murderous prison riots. How would she react? Her first reaction, she told the court, would be to be upset. She said she would then counsel the prisoner against the plan and tell him she would not be part of it. The lawyers made much of the fact that she did not say she would immediately inform prison authorities of the pending riot. Never mind that the situation was entirely hypothetical. Plaintiff's lawyers got Jalit to admit to having attended talks by renowned prison rights lawyer Will and Cutler and marching in protest against the Vietnam War. They also brought up her marriage to Cruz to impunge her motives. But by the time Jalit got off the stand, the lawyers had little to show for their questioning. They got nowhere. Cruz, meanwhile, was having trouble adjusting to his new freedom. On his release, his family in San Antonio had given 500 bucks. A dangerous amount of cash in a pocket for a former addict just out of prison. One morning, a few weeks into the trial, he bought a bottle of bourbon and started drinking. He didn't make it to the trial that day. Other drugs may have been involved because by 9.35 at night, he was having trouble breathing and admitted to St. Luke's Hospital. When it came their turn to call witnesses, Jalen and her lawyers could have presented a narrow defense, focused on the fact that there was simply no believable evidence that she had did this. The case against her... He had a chance to put on record all the constitutional conduct and BS that TDC was doing. 
So for nearly a month, Jowett's attorney called dozens of current and former inmates to tell what they had personally witnessed and experienced. Man after man told tales of the exact forms of brutality McAdams had casually dismissed as lies. Many of the stories implicated McAdams personally. One former prisoner named Clyde Sewell told a graphic account of an incident in which three inmates, all supposedly shot by McAdams while they were trying to escape, were laid out as examples, alive but bleeding profusely at the entrance of the dining hall. We had to walk through blood to get to the dining room that day. Witnesses described McAdams as a tyrannical bigot who used violence and intimidation to control the prisoner population. In particular, inmates testified he had it out for Javits' clients. Alvin Slayton testified that he believed Novak died from lack of medical attention. He also spoke of the motivation for his own self-mutilations. Slayton had more than 50 scars on his arms and Novak had hobbled himself by cutting his Achilles tendon. Mutilation is part of the prison culture, he told Judge Bue. It's the only way to get out of this, out of the hole or chains. This is my way of retaliation. I don't think a convict has to come in this courtroom who hasn't mutilated himself. No one was certain what the effect of the testimony was having on Judge Blue. They couldn't tell. But it, it was changing the mind of at least one man in the courtroom. Donald Locke, the prisoner trustee, suing jollyly, listened silently as McAdams lied about the brutality in prisons. Like nearly every prisoner in Texas, he had to do many desperate and sometimes despicable things to survive but has he listened to his fellow prisoners testify knowing they all risked reprisals when they returned to their cells he must have begun to wonder whether simply surviving was enough after weeks of testimony Locks had heard enough and made a difficult decision he passed a word to Java's attorney that he wanted to take the stand again it was an unusual request for a plaintiff to ask to be recalled by the defense Java was normally a flurry of activity at the defense table, taking copious shorthand notes and passing messages to her lawyer. But when Locke took the stand for the second time on May 22nd, she sat perfectly still, her eyes down in prayer. It's all a lie, Locke said. Immediately, his hands shaking, and he started to cry. Miss Jowett has done nothing. She tried to help me. She tried to help the entire prison population. A lawyer for Jowett asked him if he had been pressured to file his suit. They don't come right out and tell me to file it, he admitted. But you just get used to the ways that these people talk and you know what they mean. I knew that filing a suit was my only way out. He identified McAdams as one of the three prison officials who pressured him. After agreeing to sue Jallet, Locke said he had been immediately rewarded. He began living the good life, or what passed for it in prison. Promoted to trustee, Locke suddenly had power over low-level guards and could get prisoners put in or taken out of solitary. Once he decided to tell the truth on the stand, Locke wasn't going to stop. He told of the beatings he suffered at the hands of the prison guards and building tenders. He said Beto was a phony who oversaw a prison system that was pure hell. Locke never revealed exactly what made him turn, but the way he went after McAdams suggested was the warden's blanket denials pushed him over the edge. McAdams, he said, not only knew about the brutality, but he participated in it. He was a sadistic, sick man. Locke predicated and admitted on the stand that his decision to tell the truth was his death sentence. I think they'll do it kind of legal-like, he said in a shaky voice. They put him out in the field, he figured, put a bullet in his back and claimed he tried to escape. He literally said that on the stand. 
Judge Bue did not comment directly, but made a ruling clearly indicating he believed Locke in one regard. He ordered that Locke be held in protective custody outside of the prison system in the Galveston County Jail. Was the only Texas inmate to do his time in Galveston County Jail. Stories in the next day's paper led with Locke's recanting. I never knew that myself. Beto had yet to get his turn on the stand. He was a powerful man, used to respect, and his answer seemed to suggest he had little concern over the potential consequences of the trial. The lawyer representing Dreyer tossed him softballs intended to show that he was caring and progressive administrator. Like McAdams, Beto flatly denied that any brutality was permitted. Prison people who come from other states are astounded at the relaxed atmosphere we have in our prisons, he boasted. Yes, he said, the building tender system kept the administration informed about the activities of inmates, but he didn't think of them as snitches. Did building tenders have responsibility for punishing inmates? None. None. I think generally the inmates regard building tenders as porters or janitors, something like that, he said, lying coldly. Bill Kilgerland, an expert trial attorney working on behalf of the ACLU, took Beto's testimony apart, quizzing him about the background of supposedly peaceable building tenders. The record showed that building tender Jesse Bay sitting Montague had stolen from his fellow prisoners, set a prison employee on fire using lighted fluid, and had raped fellow inmates. Was this the type of person TDC elevated the building tender? You're not recognizing, Beto smirked, that people can change, man. Asked about Cruz, Beto testified that he thought Cruz had an insolent attitude and that he refused to conform to the rules. He claimed that he tried to help him and he tried to counsel him to avail himself of the opportunities of education. Sadly, Beto said Cruz ignored all of his advice. Asked when he begun to worry about Jalen's intentions, Beto brought up one of the first letters he had received from her just a few months after she had met Cruz. The letter was written after she had taken time to tour the Goree unit, the prison reserved for women inmates. In the notes of Beto, she had praised the facility as bright, modern, well-furnished. She said it was reminded her of a college dormitory. She ended the letter, Whatever I saw was pleasing, but not pleasant. Beto was asked if it was that rather innocuous parenthetical that first made him suspicious. It aroused some misgivings. Yes, sir, it did, Beto said. That raised a question in my mind as she concluded automatically that there are places that are secretive in a prison. Beto was then forced to concede that on several occasions while he had actively lobbied Jalad's boss, among others, to get her fired, that he did do that. I'll just say one crucial question for the end, no doubt hoping it would stick in the judge's mind. Did Beto have any evidence or knowledge as to whether Francis Jowett had ever committed an illegal activity? George Beto literally had to admit on the stand he had no knowledge, evidence, or proof of her ever committing a crime. He said no. With one plaintiff skipping town at the beginning of the trial and another admitting he had been pressured into filing a suit and lied under oath, the trial couldn't have gone much worse for Beto and TDC. Addressing the courtroom at the end of proceedings, Judge Bue struggled to put into words the overall impact of the testimony. The trial lasted six weeks with more than 60 witnesses, 47 of them inmates. 
Frankly, Bew told the court, I've never seen a case like this before. For the past six weeks, I've felt that I've lived on another planet, literally. There was the free world, he noted, and then another that existed behind the walls of TDC. It was a world with rules and values that were so different as to almost be incomprehensible. While he had started the case stacking the deck against Jallet, it was clear his mind had been changed and she was winning. Buse ruling stated that he found no evidence of conspiracy on the part of Jallet or any of her clients. There had been no compelling evidence that she was anything but a hard-working woman and a lawyer. Barring her from prison and punishing her clients was unconstitutional, unconscionable, and wholly self-serving. It was wrong. The defeat was public humiliation for George Beto. He retired as head of TDC a month after that. The most powerful man in Texas could not take an L. <laughs> he retired. Worse still for Beto, Jallet's countersuit against him for barring her from clients was still pending. Bew would hear the case, now wise to what was going on in TDC. Beto never admitted that his growing legal troubles were the cause of his resignation, though. He claimed that he'd always set a 10-year limit on his term as head of TDC. For many of the prisoners of the 8 whole squad, however, his resignation was a clear victory. They believed they had broken walking George Beto their damn selves, and they did. I long ago learned, Beto wrote bitterly to a fellow prison administrator in Indiana, that prison people have no way of keeping citizens happy. Beto was a good poker player, his biographer wrote, and he knew when to fold a losing hand. Even Beto's resignation couldn't shake Jallet and Cruz from their legal pursuit, though. Once again, before Judge Bue, Jallet and 8th Hole Squad won their case against Beto. They won. Bue ruled that Beto's action in barring Jallet from visiting her clients and punishing those prisoners for trying to access courts had infringed on their rights. This case was unprecedented. It's never happened before. Never before had Texas prisoners won a suit against the prisons. The evidence demonstrates, Bue wrote, that defendant Beto instituted reprisals against Mrs. Cruz and her clients for reasons totally unrelated to considerations of proper prison administration. Such actions were taken in violation of Jalit's constitutional rights. Defendant Beto did not act with good purpose and with belief that he was doing right. Bew held Beto liable for $10,291 to be awarded to Jalit and the 8 whole squad, and he had to pay $28,000 for her attorney fees. The, the damage to his reputation, however, was the true cost. Jallet and Cruz's victory against Beto in federal courts sent a signal to prison officials across the country. It is clear, Judge Bue said when handing down his ruling, that public and legal scrutiny of the prison system is underway in the country. No longer will judges turn a blind eye to what was happening behind prison walls. Even men as powerful as Beto could be held accountable. The legal challenge to the Texas prison system didn't end with Beto's disgrace. The lawsuit that Cruz and Jallet in the eight hole began to grow into a legal case that would shake TDC to its core. David Ruiz, the street fighter of the eight hole squad, would become a lead plaintiff in a massive class action suit that would take years to be litigated. William Bennett Turner, who had helped Jallet in one of the earlier battles with the Texas prison system, now took over as the lead lawyer to help. In December 1980, after a trial that heard from 349 witnesses and collected 1,530 exhibits of evidence, 
A federal judge declared that the Texas Department of Corrections was operating in a fundamentally unconstitutional matter. In his broad ruling, it highlighted many failings and many of the problems that Jalen and them had highlighted. She won. She changed the system. It's impossible for written opinion to convey the pernicious conditions and the pain and the degradation which ordinary inmates suffered within TDC, the judge wrote. No human being, regardless of how disfavored by society, shall be deprived of due process in the United States. Ms. Cruz continued to represent prisoners for another decade. She and Cruz moved to Chicago where she joined the staff of the Cook County Legal Assistance Program. In 76, the pair took a year-long trip to Spain where they both enrolled a series of classes at the University of Seville. For a tidy ending, this order would leave their story. But life does not have nice endings. The remarkable self-discipline Cruz had manifested in prison wavered in the cultural hothouse of the 70s. His confidence abandoned him too. Within TDC, he had became famous, respected, and feared for his intelligence and indomitable spirit. Outside these walls, he was a Hispanic man with no education, no degrees, and a felony record. Jowett wrote to the Harvard Law School to try to get him admitted to Nordvale. He drifted back into drug use. Jowett stuck by him for years, trying to help him find satisfying work and paying for treatments and addiction rehabilitation centers. Fred was so strong and courageous against the prison authorities and endured many hardships for his beliefs, she wrote to her friend. Once in the free world, he's just not so strong. They divorced in 1978. Fred Cruz went on to remarry and have a daughter who he named Frances Cruz. Fred died of an overdose in 1987. He was 47. The rest in peace, Fred. A few years earlier, he'd written to Jalit. It's so difficult to gather my thoughts that I seldom write anymore. The only certainty that remains unchanged are my feelings for you. They grow with the passage of time, strengthen with the respect created at the beginning when we lived in different worlds. Miss Jalit Cruz died in 1984 at the age of 84, back in the Connecticut near children. Before she died, she drafted an essay for the Columbian Law School Observer reflecting her adventures in Texas. Her work with Cruz and the prisoners she represented, she wrote, has meant more to me than anything I've ever done in life. It was the most draining, most exciting, most rewarding undertaking thing ever. And Miss Jalit, Texas, we thank you.